Freeway by Bryce Walton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Jenkins. Freeway by Bryce Walton. The Morrisons didn't lose their freedom. They were merely sentenced to the highways for life. Never stopping anywhere, going no place, just driving, driving, driving. Some people had disagreed with him. They were influential people. He was put on the road. Stan wanted to scream at the big 16-cylinder special to go faster. But Salt Lake City, where they would allow him to stop over for the maximum eight hours, was a long way off. And anyway, he couldn't go over a hundred. The special had an automatic cutoff. He stared down the Super 10-lane freeway, down the glassy river, plunging straight across the early desert morning into nowhere. That was Anna's trouble. His wife couldn't just keep traveling, knowing there was no place to go. No one could do that. I can't do it much longer either, Stan thought. The two of us, with no place to go, but back and forth, across and over, retracing the same throwaways, highways, freeways, a thousand times round and round like mobile bugs caught in a gigantic concrete net. He kept watching his wife's white face in the rearview mirror. Now there was this bitter veil of resignation painted on it. He didn't know when the hysteria would scream through again, what she would try next or when. She had always been highly emotional, vital, active, a fighter. The special kept moving, but it was still a suffocating cage. She needed to stop over somewhere, longer, much longer than the maximum eight hours. She needed treatment a good long rest, a doctor's care. She might need more than that. Complete freedom, perhaps. She'd always been an all-or-nothing gal, but he couldn't give her that. Shimmering up ahead, he saw the shack about 50 feet off the freeway, saw the fluttering of colorful hand-woven rugs and blankets covered with ancient Indian symbols. It wasn't an authorized stop, but he stopped. The car swayed slightly as he pressed the hydraulic, from the bluish haze of the desert's tranquil breath, a jackrabbit hopped onto the freeway's fringe. It froze. Then with a squeal, it scrambled back into the dust to escape the thing hurtling toward it out of the rising sun. Stan jumped out. The dust burned. There was a flat, heavy violence to the blast of morning sun on his face. He looked in through the rear window of the car. You'll be okay, honey. Her face was feverish. Sweat stood out on her forehead. She didn't look at him. It's too late, she said. We're dead, Stan. Moving all the time, but not alive. He turned. The pressure, the suppression, the helpless anger was in him, meeting the heavy hand of the sun. An old Indian, wearing dirty Levi's and a denim shirt and a beaded belt, was standing near him. His face was angled, so dark it had a bluish tinge. Blanket? Rugs? Handmade? Real Indian stuff? My wife's sick, Stan said. She needs a doctor. I want to use your phone to call a doctor. I can't leave the freeway. This was the fourth unauthorized stop he had made since Anna tried to jump out of the car back there, when it was going a hundred miles an hour. The engine saw the special's license. He shrugged, then shook his head. For God's sake, don't shake your head, Stan yelled. Just let me use your phone. The engine kept on shaking his head. There was no emotion. Only a fatalistic acceptance 
of the overly complex world he and many of his kind had rejected long ago. You're a crackpot. But what's that to you when I just want to use your phone? If I can get a doctor's affidavit... If I help you, then the law comes down on my neck. But I only want to use the phone. I cannot risk it. You drive on now. He felt it, the thing that was slowly dying in Anna's eyes. The need to strike out, strike out hard and murderously, at something real. The suppressed feeling had been growing in him now for too many miles to remember. He started forward, but the Indian slid the knife from his beaded belt. I'm sorry, and that's the honest truth, the Indian said. But you have to move on now. The Indian stepped back toward the ancient symbols of his kind. We've stopped moving. We stay here now, no matter what. Now, white doctor, it's your turn to move on. He put his hand over his eyes as though to push something down. One act of violence and the questionable freedom would be ended. That would be an admission of defeat. His hand still over his eyes, he backed away. Then he turned, choking and half-blinded with smoldering rage. Keep moving. Nothing else to do with them but put them on the road and keep them moving, never letting them stop long enough to cause trouble, to stir up any wrong ideas. Hit the road, crackpot. Head on down the super ten-lane freeway into the second middle age lit with neon. Then he was running, yelling at Anna. She was past the shack and stumbling through and toward the mountains. He coaxed her back into the car, sickness gorging his throat as she kicked and screamed at him, and he forced her into the corner of the back seat. Stan, we could run to the mountains. The law wouldn't let us get very far. Remember, the special's remotely controlled. If we leave the freeway, they'd be on us in no time. They know when we stop, where we stop. They know if we leave the freeway. But we would have tried. They're just waiting for us to do something legally wrong so they can put us away, honey. We can't let ourselves be goaded into doing anything legally wrong. Stan. She was shaking her head and her eyes were wet. Can't you see? Can't you see? What they do to us doesn't matter. It's what we do or don't do. When she quieted down a little, he got back under the wheel. Within a hundred feet, the special was going eighty-five miles an hour. The thing he had to hold on to hard was the fact that they had never really done anything wrong. Anna needed a good long rest so she could regain the proper perspective. The high court itself had said they hadn't done anything wrong. There were thousands now on the freeways. None of them had any real criminal labels on them. There were risks. They might be dangerous. Attitudes not quite right. A little off-center one way or another at the wrong time. Some personal indiscretion in the past. A thought not quite orthodox in the present. Possible future threat. A threat to total security. Be careful. Easy does it. Too many black marks on his road record, and the freedom of the road would go. Then he would be a criminal in fact, instead of a vague criminal possibility, and put behind bars. Or worse. To hell with him. To hell with it all. He pulled over onto an emergency siding and stopped. Not authorized. A good long rest and talk with Anna. Then he saw it. Suddenly, frantically, he wanted to move on. But now he couldn't. He kept seeing the light of defiance fading from Anna's eyes. The patrol car was there, the way it always was there, suddenly materializing out of the desert, or out of a mountain, or a side street. Sometimes it was a halo dropping out of the sky. Sometimes it was a light flashing in the darkness. Every official of the law, city, 
county, state, or federal, had a full record on every special. They could control them at will, stop them, start them, keep them moving down the line. Jails of the open road, mobility leading to incarceration, a mock illusion of freedom, open sky, open prairie, the freeway stretching ahead, and the patrol car coming up behind. The patrol car stopped. Two patrolmen in black and gold uniforms looked in at Stan. Well, Egghead, the older, beefier one said, it was nice of you to stop without being asked. A fellow named Freddy back at Snap Service Number 7 said you might be a troublemaker. We thought we ought to check up. Stan said, I wanted to use his phone to try and get a doctor to examine my wife. She's ill. She needs help, and I've been trying. Without turning, the older patrolman interrupted. Larry, what you got on the philosopher here? The young patrolman, who had a shy, almost embarrassed air about him, looked into his black notebook. He isn't a philosopher, not officially, Leland. Every crackpot we stop, you figure him to be a philosopher. You just hate philosophers, that's all. Well, that's a fact, boy. When he took the scar out of his mouth, the corners of his mouth were stained brown. My kid got loused up plenty by a philosopher in high school last year. I raised a squawk and got the crackpot kicked out. I also got three others booted out for hiring him in the first place. I found out he was a lousy atheist. The patrolman put the cigar back in his mouth. What have you got on him, Lieutenant? Stanley, L. Morrison, B.A., Drake University, Class of 55. Doctor of Philosophy, Drake University, 1957. Federal Employee, 1957-59. Dropped from the Federal Employment, January, 1959. What for, Lieutenant? For excessive political enthusiasm for the preceding political party in office. Lieutenant looked up almost apologetic. Looks like he was unfortunate enough to have been on the wrong side of the fence when the independents were elected. These guys are dangerous no matter what side they're on. A crackpot shouldn't be on either side. Well, Lieutenant, what else? Professor of Nuclear Physics, Drake University, 1960-62. Dismissed by Board of Regents, May 31. Charged with private thought inconsistent with the policies of the university. Special Inquiry, August 5th. Dismissal sustained. Was put on the road as a permanent risk to security. February 3rd, 1963. He's been on the road for a year and three months. Stan forced quiet into his voice. My wife's sick. If I could get a doctor to examine her, I'm sure I could get a permit to lay over somewhere so she can get rest and proper treatment. Only eight hours, the beefy one said. That's the limit, and you're not supposed to have stopped here at all, or back at the Indians. I know, Stan said, but this is an emergency. If you could help me. The beefy one grinned into the back seat. That might be all that's bothering the Mrs. Egghead. She ain't getting the proper treatment, maybe. Easy does it. In the rearview mirror, he could see what the patrolman said had brought a flush of life to her face. She was rigid now, and then suddenly she screamed. Stan! For God's sake, Stan! Don't take any more from this simian! Let's go, the young lieutenant said quickly. We've got the report, and we'll forward it. There's no call to bait them. Shut up, the beefy one said. Don't tell me to shut up, the lieutenant said. He put his notebook away. This man's never committed any crime. That's why he's here on the road. They didn't know what else to do with him. We're supposed to keep them moving, that's all. Not to hold him up because of personal vindictiveness. Beefy one's face was getting red. Don't use your big words on me, boy. I'll send you back to college. 
He's getting punishment enough. You've got nothing against him or the woman. The beefy one took a deep breath. Okay, Lieutenant, but I'm going to drop a few words in the right place. I guess you know how the commissioner feels about crackpots. I don't give a damn. Come on, let's get out of here. The lieutenant looked at Stan a moment. You better move on, Doctor. Thanks, Stan said. At the next snappy service, maybe you can phone. That's an hour's authorized stop for specials. There's a government project in the hills nearby. You might be able to contact a doctor there. The sage spread out to a blur. Heat wavered up from the freeway. In the rearview mirror, he saw Anna leaning back, her legs stretched out, her arms limp at her side. She wasn't thinking about this with a historical perspective. That was the trouble. She had lost the saving sense of continuity. With generations gone, which stretched like a lifeline across the frightened present. Keep the perspective. Wait it out. That was the only way. This was a historical phase, part of a cycle. Stan couldn't blame anyone. Anxiety, suspicion of intellectuals and men of science, as though they had been more responsible really than anyone else. Suspicion and fear. There always had to be a whipping boys. In one form or another, he knew it. It had happened many times before. Another time of change and danger. It was a quicksand of fear under men's reasoning. When things were better, they hadn't remained better. When they were bad, they couldn't stay bad. Wait it out. One thing he knew, neither he or any other scientist could detach himself from life. The frightened policemen of the public conscience had made the mistake of thinking they could detach the scientist. I'll not withdraw from it. All of it represents a necessary change. If not for the immediate better, then I'll be here for the immediate worst, which will someday change into something better than ever. But Anna's tired voice was whispering in his ear. First of all, we're individuals. Men. Women. We've got to fight. Fight back. At what? Ourselves? A sign said, Howl's snappy service. Twenty-seven miles. She's right, he thought, and started slowing down. This is it. He wasn't going any farther until Anna was examined, and he was given an okay to stop somewhere she could rest. It was a dusty oasis, an arid anachronism on the desert's edge. Beyond it, the mountains blundered up like giants from a purplish haze, brooding and somehow threatening. Groves of cottonwoods could be seen far ahead and sprinklings of green reaching into the thinning sage. The old man shuffled out of the shade by the coke machine. Behind him, through dusty glasses, Stan saw the blurred faces staring with curiosity. The old man hesitated, then came around between the pumps to the driver's side. He was all stooped, bone and leathery skin. His face, Stan thought beneath the rising desperation, resembled an African ceremonial mask. To the left, a 62 Fordster was cranked up for a grease job, but the only life around it was a scrawny dog laying out flat to get all the air possible on its ribby body, its tongue hanging out in the black grease. The car's okay, Stan said. I just want to use your telephone. Dr. Morrison, you'd better go on Salt Lake City. There's an eight-hour stopover. My wife needs a doctor's okay for a long rest. I can't take a chance on going clear to Salt Lake City. But this is only an hour stop. Stan got out and shoved past the old man. Heat waves shivered up out of the concrete and through the soles of his shoes. The heat seared his dry throat and burned his lungs. Anna wasn't even looking. She seemed to have forgotten him. Almost everyone had forgotten him by now, he thought. Forgotten Dr. Stanley Morrison. 
the man who had never been afraid to speak out and say what he thought and think what he wanted to think. Fifteen months with never more than an eight-hour stopover. Thought and self-regard froze by perpetual motion and shriveled by consequent neglect. Only the old man remembered. That was odd. A man stepped into the doorway. He was lean and powerful, with a long, gaunt, chewing jaw like that of a horse. His eyes were small and black, and he was grinning with anticipation. Stan felt his stomach muscles tighten. Behind the man, Stan saw the kid, almost as tall as the man who was obviously his father, but rail thin, like an emaciated duplicate of the man, a starved, frustrated shadow, grinning and feverishly picking at a pimple under his left ear. He carried a grease gun cradled in his left arm as though it were a machine gun. I'd like to use your phone, please, Stan said. My wife's ill. I want to phone the government project and see if I can get a doctor over here to look at her. What seems to be troubling the missus? I don't know. Then how do you know it's a serious sickness, crackpot? Just let me use the phone. Will you do that? They phoned in ahead, crackpot. Said you might be a troublemaker. I don't want to make any trouble. I just want to use the phone. Why? Even if the doc came over, you wouldn't be here. He can't get here inside of an hour. And that's all the longer you can stay here. You've got to move on. I'm coming in to use the phone, Stan heard himself saying. He fought to keep the breathiness out of his voice, the trembling out of his throat. I don't guess I'd want to have it said I was coddling a crackpot. I never caused you any trouble. You helped build them hell bombs, the man said. He took his toothpick out of his mouth. You crazy bastards got to be kept moving along the road. How do you know what I did or didn't do? You're a crackpot. I never helped build any kind of bomb, Stan whispered. But even if I did, you're one of them nuclear physicists. I was an instructor at a university. I taught at a government school once, too, for a while. He stopped himself, realizing he was defending himself as though somehow he suspected his own guilt. You taught other guys how to build hell bombs. Who needs you and your kind crackpot? We need your brains like we need a knife in the back. Stan lunged forward. The kid yelled something in a high-cracked voice as Stan lashed out again. He felt his knuckles scraping across hard teeth. Blood leaped from the man's upper lip in a thin, crimson slash. His eyes widened with a grudging respect. Then he snarled through the blood as he stumbled backward and off balance. He fell against the window and, trying to regain his balance, reeled and went down in a welter of empty-gallon oil cans. He gathered himself for an upward lunge. Through the blood staining his teeth, he muttered, By God, crackpot, I didn't think you had the guts. Stan glanced out of the window and saw that Anna was gone from the car. Dimly, he heard the man saying he was going to beat hell out of the crackpot, going to beat the crackpot over the head, and then the crackpot wouldn't be able to cook up any more dangerous ideas in it for a long, long time. Anna may die now, Stan thought, as he stood there, bent over a little feeling his wet fist tightening. She may die now, because of a frustrated fool who doesn't know what else to do with himself on a hot, dull, and empty afternoon. Stan suddenly caught the flash of color out of the corner of his eye. He twisted, not thinking at all, and felt his fist sink into the kid's stomach. The kid fell, curling up among the empty oil cans. He writhed and moaned and held his stomach. Get up, Stan yelled in the man's face. Get up! The man came up all at once, and his weight hurled Stan clear across the room. He felt the gum machine shatter under him 
and the metal grinding into his side as he rolled. Stan felt a grease gun in his hand as he saw the man lifting the tire tool, and then Stan swung the grease gun into his face, seeing the terrible grin, the blood-stained white smile. Unrecognizable as it was, the man's face wouldn't go away. Stan swung at it again. Denier heard her voice, Anna's voice, intense and alive, and there was a flash of Anna the way he remembered her a thousand years ago before they were put on the road. She was tearing at the man's face with her fingernails and kicking him savagely. Stan had the man's shirt collar and was ripping under his fingers as he slammed the head against the concrete floor. The thudding rhythm was coming up to his arms and throbbing behind his eyes. Like drums, he thought, as a sickening light flashed in the dusty glass, like primitive war drums beating out a dance of tribal doom. Suddenly, feeling sick and weak, he stood up and walked stiffly out into the sun. He leaned against the side of the building, trying to keep from retching. Anna touched his arm, and he looked up, half blinded by the glare of the sun. Her face was flushed and alive. She seemed ten years younger. Don't be sorry, she said. Be glad, Stan. They broke us, he whispered. We've crawled into the cage. It doesn't matter, Stan. It doesn't matter what they do to us now. It is something to admit you're human, isn't it? She was partly right, at least. He felt both glad and sad. But in either case, it was the end of the road. He saw the old man lowering the hood of the special. He ran back between the pumps, carrying a metal toolbox. I've fixed it, he said, breathing heavily. Now get out of here. Push it to the limit. I broke the cutoff, too. Hurry it up. But what's the use, Stan said. They'll get us sooner or later. They're not going to get you now, not if you stop reasoning everything out as though it were a problem in calculus. I've cut the remote control off and the radar and the radio. They won't know where you are. I've changed the license plate, too. But hurry out of here before Haller or his kids start phoning. But being on the freeway, Stan said, they'll catch up with us. What's the use? Stan, Anna said sharply. Can't you see? We're getting away. I don't want to run away from it, Stan said. You're not running away from anything, the old man said. You'll find out. Follow my directions and you'll find out. You're not running away. You can get out of the flood water for a while, sit back on the bank until the water drops and clears a little. Stan looked into the old man's face for a long moment. Who the hell are you, anyway? That doesn't matter, Dr. Morrison. Now will you get out of here? Move on down the road. Stan finally nodded and took Anna's arm and they started towards the special. All right, but what about you, he asked the old man. I'll make out. You just be concerned about yourself, Dr. Morrison. This isn't the first time I've helped someone off the road. It won't be the last time either, I hope. He waved to them as the special, without any limit to its speed, now except the limitations of a driver's nerve, roared away towards the mountains. Now the special became anonymous on the freeway, one of countless cars hurtling down the super ten-lane freeway, its license changed, its controls and checkers cut off, its sovereignty returned to it by a nameless old man, a box of wrenches, and a roll of wire. Three hundred miles farther on, the freeway began a long, banked curve. A thick wall of cottonwoods, willows, and small brush lined the side where a creek rushed out of a cleft into the lower hills and ran along the freeway's edge. Stan started to slow down. There, that's it, Anna said, pointing excitedly. The big rock, the three tall trees, there, between the rock and the trees. Turn, Stan, turn! But there isn't any road, there isn't... 
Turn! Stan turned. He blinked as the special roared off the freeway and smashed through a solid wall of leaves, branches, and brush. They were on a narrow, winding dirt road, dipping down into the stream where a foot of water ran over the stones to create a ford. It twisted up the other side, around the creek's edge, over stones and gravel, twisting tortuously upward and out of sight like a coiled rope. Go on, Stan, keep going. Stan kept going, demanded all of his powers of concentration just to stay on the road, which was hardly more than a pathway through the rising mountains. He had no time to think, and very little to say. Some hundred and fifty miles farther into the mountains, at an altitude that bit into their lungs, they saw the markers, almost buried in rocks on the left side of the road, a place where the old man had told them to stop and wait. But they didn't have to wait. A man, lean and healthy for his age, which must have been at least sixty, Stan thought, stepped from behind a rock and came towards the special. He was smiling, and he extended his hand. Doctor and Mrs. Morrison, he said. Anna was already out of the car, shaking his hand. Stan got out. He took a second look, then whispered. Dr. Benjamin? The man wore Levi's and a Mackinac, and he carried a rifle slung under one arm. I wasn't expecting you to recognize me he said as they shook hands. I've lost about 35 pounds, he smiled again. It's healthier up here. He walked around to the driver's side and opened the door. The motor was still running. Stan realized then what Benjamin was doing, and for some reason, without definition, he started to protest. Benjamin was setting the automatic clutch and releasing the brake. The special started moving up the road, but there was no one inside to turn the wheel when it reached the hairpin turn about 50 feet ahead. Stan watched the car gaining speed, its left door swinging like the door of a vacant house. He thought of stories he had heard about convicts, finally released after many years, stunned, frightened by reality, begging to be returned to the restricted but understandable cell. Then he smiled. Anna smiled. The special, once you push the right button, could do almost anything by itself. Feed itself gas, gain speed, shift its gears but it didn't know when to turn to avoid self-destruction. Stan went slightly as the car lurched a little and then leaped out into space. He felt the black void opening under him as though he were still in the special 15 months. His ears were filled with the sudden screeching whine of the wheels against the unresisting air. Then the world seemed to burst with a thundering series of solid, smashing roars, which were quickly dissipated into the high mountain air. Dr. Benjamin went over to the edge and looked down. That's the tenth one, he said. We're going to send a work team down there in a few days to cover it all over with rocks. Still, I doubt if we have to worry about them spotting the wreckage. He turned. Well, let's start hiking. It's still a few miles. Where? Stan asked. I've gone this far. I had no choice. But now, what's it all about? Didn't the old man tell you? No. Just remember, Morrison, we're not running away. This is an old Mormon trail. A lot of the old pioneers took it. The marker says that the Williams-Connor party camped here and was massacred by Indians in 1867. There's an old Indian city at about 3,000 feet. I guess we're the first ones to use it for maybe a 1,000 years. We've got an archaeologist up there, Michael Hillard, who's been going slightly crazy. Anyway, we've got books up there. We raise most of our own food, and we've got plenty of time to study and try and figure out where we've made the big mistakes. We're really doing very well. 
But what about the old man, Anna asked. Benjamin chuckled. Arch has turned into a regular man of a thousand faces. He works along the freeways and watches for those who are at the breaking point and can't stay on the road any longer. Some of those condemned to the freeway are criminals. Others are fools or misguided zealots. And we've got to be careful not to wise those birds up by mistake. Arch has an unerring instinct, and sending our people to us is his job. The three of them started walking up the old pioneer trail. We've made a lot of mistakes, Benjamin said. All of us, some more than others. You can't blame people for being afraid, suspicious of us. We did unleash the potentialities for total destruction without ever thinking about the social implications or ever bothering to wonder about how our contributions would be used and controlled. So we're off there waiting now, waiting and studying. Someday they'll need us again, and we'll be ready. But who was the old man? Anna asked. Benjamin laughed. Only the greatest physicist of the age. Remember Arch Hoffenstein? Stan put his arm over Anna's shoulder, and they walked on and up. He had almost forgotten, but now he never would. Somewhere, Arch Hoffenstein was hitchhiking along the freeway with the ghost of Galileo. End of Freeway by Bryce Walton Recording by James Jenkins